Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Roman Paszka, and today I will be talking to Takeshi Morisato, who is the author of Faith and Reason in Continental and Japanese Philosophy, reading Tanabe Hajime and William Desmond, a book that was published in 2019 uh, by Bloomsbury. Um, hello, Takeshi. Hello. Uh, thank you, thank so, you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to hear you. Uh, so um, I'm just going to start uh, with a question about you, about yourself, if you could uh, introduce okay. yourself a little bit, uh, about your career, uh, your research, and um, how did you become involved in this field? Okay, so uh, I'm currently a research associate at the Sun Yat-sen University in China. Uh, but before that, I was uh, doing postdoc in Europe and PhD also in, in Europe, uh, specifically Belgium. Uh, and then before that, I was studying philosophy in United States and teaching a little bit there as well. Uh, and even before that, I was in Japan. So I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, I study and uh, research in philosophy both in North America, Europe, and Japan, and now I'm in China. Uh, how I involved with this field? Uh, you know, if, if I go back in 2002, um, I wanted to study political science in the beginning. But the, uh, what really interested me about political science was the uh, political theories. So what are the assumptions and presuppositions that we make before we come up with the policies? And that sort of led me to study philosophy. So in the grand scale of um, this field as philosophy, uh, that's how I started my uh, career in philosophy a long time ago. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, I was no? just listening to you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, the... And then how I started my field in comparative Japanese philosophy, um, I was originally interested in this sort of uh, German idealism, specifically Hegel. Uh, then I started to uh, work on the field of existentialism. Uh, but in that process, basically, I struggled to find a topic that I could work for my doctoral uh, dissertation. Uh, basically, I felt so much have been written on Kant and Hegel, and if you specialize in existentialism, uh, you might not actually complete, complete the academic program because you're going to have existential crisis and all these things. Um, so I thought maybe um, you know I should work on some sort of neo-Hegelian philosophy, uh, so for instance, Slavia from Russian philosophy. And I talked to my supervisor at the time, and he is William Desmond uh, from, in the title of the book. And I talked to him and said, maybe I should work on British idealism or neo-Hegelian Russian philosophy. Uh, then he said, no, maybe you should go pick up some Kyoto school. Um, and I read this book 
philosophy as metanoidics. Uh, as it, uh, he said, I discovered this um, uh, book called The Philosophy as Metanoidics in used bookstore in New York City. And I read the book during my flight back to Europe and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I will, I would like you to actually explore more uh, this in this field. So I started my uh, sort of um, academic work um, in the field of comparative and Japanese philosophy in 2012. Uh, so that's the um, um, ways in which I got involved with this field. Mm. So uh, yeah, that was actually my <laughs> the second question that I that I had prepared. Uh, how, how did you uh, get the idea for the book? How how was the book uh, born? But um, yeah, you already explained that. So uh, let me move on to uh, to my next uh, question. Maybe I can give you a little bit more specific okay. um, sure. uh, picture. Uh, so basically, I wanted to write on Kierkegaard. Uh, so the you know existentialism in in the works of Soren Kierkegaard. Um, but I couldn't imagine writing academic dissertation on him uh, just because the content of his writing is so, um, how should I say, contradictory to the ways in which we would uh, behave and function in academia. So he has so many things to make fun of academics in his writings. Um, so that was just sort of a struggle that I had. How can I work on Kierkegaardian framework of thinking within the context of academia? And that really led to a sort of like this comparative work. Um, so the post-Hegelian uh, philosophy in, in continental European context and also uh, Kyoto School philosophy that dealt with that kind of question from their own cultural background, which is closer to mine. Uh, so that's sort of uh, the ways in which I came up with this um, topic, I think. Mm-hmm. And the reason you chose uh, Tanabe uh, mm-hmm. to work on uh, Tanabe's philosophy. Um, yes. Just that book that you happened to find and read on the on the flight uh, back to Europe? Or... Right, that's where my supervisor actually found that book. Um, okay. So he told me okay. the story that he bought two copies of Philosophy as a Metanoidics and uh, he claims that he gave one copy to Richard Carney, another famous mm-hmm. philosopher from North America, and he, he also read it. Read it. And uh, he really liked this concept of metanoesis, that is this transformation of the person that uh, grounds the um, metaphysic, metaphysics. Mm-hmm. So he really liked that idea, but he really wanted to know how Kyoto school thinkers um, critiqued Hegel and reappropriated to have their own framework of dialectical thinking. So that was the sort of contingent you know, first proposal uh, that my supervisor made. Um, so that was purely coincidental that he read it. And mm-hmm. um, But then after that, I just sort of trace back the, you know, first, it, when supervisor tells you to read something, you're not always, um, you know, you're always skeptical, right? That when supervisor said, this is great, you should read it. And you read it and it's like, ah, I'm not sure if I want to spend the next four years of my life on just this guy. Uh, but there was a, a strange click that I had. I think once I read it, I felt like, oh, okay, I can see something. I, I can do something with this. And also there are so much mystery to what's not available. Uh, so there's, you know, philosophy as a metanoidics is like half volume of 15 volumes of 
Tanabe Hajime, complete works of Tanabe Hajime, which we call the Tanabe Hajime Zenshu. Um, so I felt like, wow, there's something more to explore uh, in relation to these, uh, uh, you know, complete works. And uh, I think that sort of grabbed me into um, comparative Japanese philosophy. Okay. Um, because you, uh, so the, the book actually grew out of your doctoral dissertation, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about the, the structure of the book, the, the parts, the chapters, um, mm -hmm. a little bit about the, the contents of each um, section or chapter. Mm -hmm. So uh, the most prominent part of, uh, of the book that sort of um, shows some, how should I say, remnants of the doctoral dissertation structure is the first part, uh, which talks about methodology of comparative philosophy. Um, I think nowadays it's not a problem to talk about comparative philosophy and Japanese philosophy, let's say in North American philosophical context. But it's still very difficult to do in uh, European philosophical context. For instance, my department had 35, 40 full-time professor of philosophy and 120 PhD students uh, on the roster. And I was the only one person working on anything non-Western, uh, non-European at the time um, mm. when I was a doctoral student. So basically, you were proposing something that the most professors are not qualified to uh, judge whether or not this is actually philosophical or not. Um, you know, you can't expect a professor of philosophy in a European university to be able to read Japanese text uh, either, right? So it's not part of the philosophical language. So a kind of um, a methodological reflection that I have to give in the beginning of the book is shows the fact that, that I'm addressing to the certain audience, uh, specifically four people in my jury, as well as all, all my peers at the university. So 120 PhD students around me, as well as 40 professors there that are, hey, there is a field called comparative philosophy, and here's the reason why we could do this. Um, so you can see that's the kind of the, um, you know, leftover from doctoral dissertation. Uh, but I kept it uh, because I think it's still relevant. Uh, I don't. I don't know how many comparative philosophy specialists in in my the department that I graduated from. Um, and you know, we I'm a part of this group that actually promotes Japanese philosophy in a European academic context, um, uh, which is called the European Network of Japanese Philosophy. And Roman, you happen to be the um, uh, the vice president of the organization. Um, but this, you know, organization is quite new, and I think we're still struggling to find a space in which we can talk about Japanese philosophy in a European academic context. Um, therefore, I have to give this sort of methodological discussions of how can we do this in European academic context. Mm. I'll stop there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... As, as you mentioned, yes, we, uh, yeah, for everybody listening to us, um, Takeshi and I go back um, a long time, I think six or seven years. We've known each other. Uh, we've worked together on a couple of uh, projects. And actually, in this uh, European network of Japanese philosophy, one of the discussions that uh, 
we have constantly is about the status of um, non-Western traditions of thought, like Japanese philosophy or Chinese philosophy, uh, within the so-called Western uh, canon, right? Um, and uh, to go back to to your book, actually, um, this is uh, a discussion that you also mentioned in the introduction, right? Uh, you mentioned at some point uh, that there's this tendency to group non in in the um, um, in Western philosophy or in the Western academic system. There's a tendency to to group. Uh, to just lump in together non-Western thinkers according to geographical and linguistic um, uh, categories, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So, but do you think that's mm-hmm. problematic? And why? Why do you think uh, it's it's problematic? Um, I think the my basic stance is always like the look. The words done. The meaning of the words always depend on the context, so it's it's a kind of Wittgensteinian stance. So you, you could use the word to be harmful to somebody, but you could say in such a way that it's not harmful. So it's not something that I could just say it's literally wrong to say non-Western. Um, but the problem with this term is that it's overtly clear that the adjective <laughs> has a negative you know, negation of something, right? So non-Western is a not Western thinking. So what is implying in this adjective is that, the, yeah, really the what counts as the history of philosophy is the Western, and let's just try to talk about something that we cannot categorize within that framework. Mm-hmm. So a kind of heuristic device to name something. And, and of course, it's... Um, you know, uh, it's debatable whether it is better than, you know, Eastern or Western, you know, uh, Oriental, Occidental distinctions that they, we often talk about in the context of uh, cultural studies. But non-Western philosophy, uh, you know, is quite negative. I mean, if you think about Heidegger's famous statement that the Western philosophy is oxymoron, right, that you don't, there's only, philosophy only exists in the West. And he didn't mean it to say that the philosophy is the best thing that could have happened, right? For him, the, the notion of philosophy is uh, contracted in relation to the concept of thinking, but the distinction still survives. And I think it's quite misused in contemporary academic context. Uh, so when we say non-Western, it's like, oh, you mean like, you know, um, what is it? Seventy-five percent of the entire Earth, right? The mm. Asian philosophy is sixty percent of the, uh, you know, uh, Earth population. And when you say Asian, all the Asians go like, "Okay, which Asia are you talking about? Are you talking about Chinese philosophy, or which part of China are you talking about? Are you talking about a Korean philosophy, Japanese philosophy, or are we including uh, East Southeast Asian, uh, you know, history, intellectual history of Southeast Asia, and all these?" positive adjective right the china japan korea that has complexity of its own historical narrative is completely uh, ignored so i think when you say non-western philosophy that means you have no idea what you're talking about right and but you're trying to be polite by saying okay it's it's not <laughs> western um so i like to say like look the you know uh if it's based on this uh, assumption that the what you are familiar with as a philosophy is the history of European philosophy or the Western history of philosophy. 
whatever that might that might mean. Uh, I acknowledge that the, what you're referring to as the other traditions as non-Western, but the um, the adjective doesn't carry any meaning except the fact that you don't really know uh, about the content of that, um, what, what the word is modifying. Um, so that's, I guess, the problem that I would have. Um, awfully unclear. Um, you know, I, I'm working at the Chinese university, so if you go to the li university library in China, it's interesting, right? Be depending on where you live, what counts as domestic and foreign is always relative to the land in which you live. So if you go to the Sunyasi University University Library, you have Chinese books and English books, and you have other countries, other foreign languages. And if you go to that section, you have French, German, Arabic, Russian, and Japanese right next to each other, you know, which mm. is quite different from our conception of what counts as the part of the canon, what doesn't count, uh, you know, what doesn't count as the part of the canon. Uh, so eventually, I think we we just have to stop using it, like the term mm -hmm. non-Western. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I felt that um, picking up on uh, on what you said. Uh, so I felt uh, reading your book that um, you discuss a lot of uh, philosophers. Um, you discuss Kant. You discuss uh, Hegel. Uh, you also, um, of course, uh, discuss uh, William Desmond. Uh, so you talk about philosophers from this Western canyon, but you put them in a comparative perspective uh, by bringing um, Tanabe Hajime's um, uh, philosophy uh, in the whole equation, right? Um, and I felt, when I was reading the book, I felt that um, this is a very um, valid position for uh, comparative philosophy. And uh, it's also one of the strengths of uh comparative philosophy uh, and if I remember correctly you do mention uh, in in the first part where you talk about your own definition or understanding of comparative philosophy uh, you do talk about the strengths and uh, weaknesses of uh, of such a demarche right mm -hmm. yeah so the strengths and a weakness yeah I mean, the weakness is precisely the fact that it's not part of the main canon of a philosophical program in actually many parts of the world. So the, you know, the the philosophy programs around the world tend to be very Eurocentric uh, in general. Um, so even if you take philosophy courses in China, well, maybe not so much in China because you have a history of Chinese philosophy in most of the programs. But if you go to uh, Japanese universities, I think you have more professors teaching European philosophy than Japanese philosophy. And in fact, many professors would hesitate to use the term Japanese philosophy. Um, so the weakness is just the fact that we don't have many resources to be able to substantiate our claim that the intellectual history of Japan has rich resources that provide materials for our philosophical thinking. I think that was one of the things that I mentioned. Uh, the strength is that sometimes, you know, when you step out of your own boundary, um, when you have certain assumptions by which you make philosophical uh, points, uh, it requires just a kind of transcending or cross, you know, crossing that boundary to be able to reevaluate re what's the assumptions by which we're making these claims. 
you know, the example is like the notion of secularization or the sacred, right? In a contemporary society, it's quite clear in, in Belgium, where I am right now, that secularization is one of the dominant voice and religion is, you know, um, Judeo-Christian tradition. But if you go to Japan, Judeo-Christian tradition is not the dominant form of, of the notion of the sacred or religiosity, right? Um, so you have a different sense of uh, secularization, for instance. So it raises this kind of question of, okay, what are the assumptions in which we're making these claims when we say something like religious or sacred or good or evil, uh, truth, uh, falsity, so on and so forth. Um, so I think sometimes comparative philosophy actually can spark this, you know, foundational thinking that sort of, okay, you become expert in Kantian framework of thinking or you become expert in Hegelian concepts. But then what are the assumptions that we actually making when we uh, hold on to these frameworks and sometimes um, maybe... I don't think it's impossible to do the same within the uh, boundary of a European philosophical tradition. For instance, you can read Heidegger to get to the same point. But uh, if you have access to uh, different intellectual traditions, sometimes we could do things that are a lot easier to do uh, than, for instance, reading B in time. That's, that's the strength that I can think about right now. Okay. Okay. Um, now... Um, this is something that you talk about in the, uh, in the first part of the book, uh, uh, you reflect on, um, the meaning, uh, the definition, the understanding of, uh, comparative philosophy. And I wanted to, um, go through the, um, other parts. Uh, so the book consists of, uh, four parts, uh, the first one is, contains these reflections on comparative philosophy. The second one discusses uh, the fundamental problems of the philosophy of uh, religion, thinking through rational universalism. And there you discuss Kant and uh, Hegel, right? Uh, the third part, uh, you talk about metaxology and the problems of the philosophy of religion. Fourth part, uh, which has two chapters. You talk about metanoetics and the problems of the philosophy of religion. And this is where you discuss uh, Tanabe Hajime, right? Uh, Tanabe Hajime and Buddhism and um, his discussion of the problems of uh, philosophy of religion. And um, I do have loads of questions for you, uh, but <laughs> focus on some uh, questions uh, that pertain to the last part, the last two chapters where you discuss uh, Tanabe Hajime. So my first question would be um, about um, Tanabe's uh, stances on Christianity and uh, Buddhism. Uh, so if uh, I may quote from the book, uh, this is page 141, by the way, uh, you say... <laughs> Uh, you write, I would like to discuss the general problem of engaging in a comparative philosophy of religion in relation to Christianity and Buddhism. And then you go on to say, uh, you talk about Tanabe's stances toward different sects of Buddhism as well as Christianity uh, slightly vary from one text to another. And these variations in his reflections on different religious uh, traditions 
tacitly deal with the general problem of the inter-philosophical uh, and inter-religious dialogues between Buddhism and Christianity. Uh, so my, my question was about these um, stances, um, Tanabe's uh, stances. Uh, how how do they vary? If you if you could give us um, an example, maybe uh, about his. Um... Okay, that's very. Um difficult question and um i think the one of the easiest examples that you can find uh would be his stance toward the zen for zen buddhism uh so within the context of japanese buddhism he's very critical of zen uh because zen philosophy is a predominant voice in kyoto school philosophy of religion and metaphysics so for instance if you read nishida kitaro who is the founder a co-founding member of the kyoto school philosophy he has a strong zen element um in, in his philosophy at least that's how tanabe seems to be thinking and um so philosophy as metanoetics for instance is very critical of nishida and zen but he slightly puts a different accent. So basically he's saying that the Zen philosophy is for somebody who practiced Zen and somebody who can actually get to the Zen insight after years of practice uh, and years of meditation and years of uh, living their lives in accordance with the teachings. Um, and also, so basically his point, point is to say that, the, yeah, I, I recognize the possibility of that perspective but i don't think i'm capable of reaching that point i'm i'm not you know i'm not a saint i'm not a sage that can actually overcome these uh problems with my own power so he relies on uh pure and buddhist tradition uh, as as the foundation for doing philosophy and um that's when so in, in the context of philosophy as metanoidics he's clearly saying that i'm you know, going toward the pure line Buddhism rather than Zen Buddhism. Uh, now, if you know the history of Japanese Buddhism, that distinction between Zen and pure line oftentimes made, you know, we make exaggerated differences or sometimes there's profound sameness because it's Buddhism. And I think in the context of philosophy of met metanoidics, it's, it's almost like a polemic to Zen and Nishida there but then later texts for instance um uh existence love and practice which is the book right come right after um philosophy as metanoidics he starts to say there isn't something in zen that i can't really give up and then the book after that is called the dialectic of christianity published in 1948 he clearly states that some zen buddhists are holding on to the same uh, you know, absolute dialectic as I'm proposing. Um, so in the context of um, later philosophy of religion, uh, she, he shifts uh, within the later, uh, you know, within the later philosophy of Tanabe's uh, thinking. Uh, there's sort of a, you know, change from one perspective to another. Um, interestingly, he doesn't talk about Christianity almost at all in philosophy as metanoidics but then uh you know as you can see from the title of the book the dialectic of christianity he brings uh christianity into the, to the table and he's basically arguing that the buddhism japanese buddhism including both zen and pure buddhism and christianity and marxism 
can hold this dialectical relationship with each other to constitute um, ideal human society and you know um, live uh, in, in accordance with the sense of the sacred or or the religious. Um, so, you know, he doesn't talk about that at all in the beginning, except he uses this term metanoesis, which comes from the Bible, right? Metanoia, um, the confess, right? repent. That's the um, line from the gospel. But he uses the concept, but doesn't talk much about it. And then later he uh, puts more emphasis on Christianity in later books. So um, I think that's the kind of deviations uh, you know, sometimes he relies on the existential aspect. So he would say something like, okay, theoretically, that might be possible. But as a single individual, I can't possibly see myself going through it um, in reference to uh, Zen and Christianity. So he's already ambiguous. Like, okay, is, is he saying that this is theoretically impossible to hold on to this kind of... Uh, dream of being absolutely good in Christian or Zen Buddhist context, or uh, he's saying that no, I as single individual, and you know, I as a Tanare Hajime, I can't make this happen. You know, uh, so I have to provide different ways in which we can do a metaphysics and philosophy of religion. Um, I think um, depends on how you interpret it. I think if you put the emphasis on certain text. You can make a point that, yeah, Tanav is seriously thinking about pushing pure land over against all the other uh, religious traditions. But then sometimes he looks like, um, you know, he's he, he looks like saying there's some truth to the all different traditions. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I, you know, so he qualifies quite a bit. And it's very difficult to um, pin down. This is precisely the position he's taking. Uh, so you have to kind of look at how he takes different positions as he goes through uh, his work, I would say. Are these the layers um, uh, that you talk about in the last um, chapter mm-hmm. about uh, Tanabe? So you you do mention uh, that there are two layers uh, in his later works. There are two layers uh, to his works on the philosophy mm-hmm. of uh, religion. Right. Um, so these layers are even... I would say architectonic of these ambiguities. So these ambiguities are just happening within the text from one place to another, but overall structure of metanoesis or absolute dialectic that he calls has these two layers, that there's a sort of intermediation of, you know, the, the notion of the divine absolute and human relative has to be uh, intermediate, uh, intermediate with each other. Um, so that layer of two layers of um, dialectical framework is something overarching, uh, more comprehensive than these ambiguities in between. So, yeah, I think, you know, this is really the problem because some people ask me, so is Tanabe a Christian thinker or is he a Buddhist thinker or what is he? It's very difficult to answer. I think in some ways, yeah, he's very close to the Christianity and some people associate that this is one of the things that are, you know, some, some, some people, um, said like, yeah, but you put in Tanabe almost right next to, uh, Catholic Christianity, you know, Catholicism, isn't it problematic 
you know, and then you have Catholic thinkers reading my text and saying that, yeah, I don't quite understand how could Buddhism be right next to Christianity, you know? Um, I think my take is that the, is that he refrains from holding on to one perspective or another, but rather trying to take some um, underlining, you know, the specific term that they use, logic. Not logic in the sense of um, uh, formal logic or the structure of our thinking, but there's kind of reasonable structure that that is underneath all the religious traditions. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. Um, so in many cases we would uh, see the discrepancy between his understanding of, you know, Shinran, for instance, from the people who actually live in POM Buddhist tradition and study Shinran. I think there's a kind of discrepancy between the two. But these ambiguities are within the those two layers that I talked about in my book. Mm-hmm. I see. And I'm, I'm sorry uh, for asking all these difficult questions. But yeah, it's, I miss- yeah, it's really exciting. And, uh, um, you know, it, it actually rejuvenating me to rethink these problems that uh, uh, I worked on. So please uh, keep asking. I, I find this absolutely uh, fascinating. Um, the uh, There's another thing that uh, I actually found uh, really fascinating about the, the conclusion. Uh, it's not the bulk of the conclusion. It's just a note that uh, you made, uh, you wrote down in the first part of the of the conclusion. Um, so uh, you discuss all these uh, philosophers, um, Kant and Hegel, uh, Desmond and Tanabe. And then uh, at the end, you write that, um, if I may quote again, um, I, I found this very... Uh, genuine and uh, sincere, and I absolutely uh, love this uh, attitude. Uh, you say, hey, um, it still seems that I lack my own thought on the questions. It may be so. I do have to confess that I do not yet have any systematic framework of thinking that I can call my own, nor do I know how to articulate my original responses to the questions of religion in my own terms. Um I found this um, very powerful, uh, like I said, because it's very honest and, 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 and genuine. And I found this very powerful. I wanted to ask, so the book was published in 2019, right? I wanted to ask you if things have changed in the meantime. <laughs> Did I come up with my uh, world um, changing the Copernican revolution of systemic way of thinking? Um, I think... You know, like when you start philosophy, uh, you know, doctoral program, or when you start actually philosophy, right? That when you start writing philosophy, undergraduate, graduate program oftentimes just ask you to write what you understood from reading the text. And then maybe graduate school, uh, you started to talk about what's the original contribution that you can provide to this reading of this text or to the solution to the problem. Um, I think at the doctoral dissertation level, I was driven to come up with my own solution to the problem. So it's the problem is always the first issue rather than having the um, absolute knowledge of Tanave and William Desmond. So my take was to say like, okay, what can we learn from these thinkers about the problem of philosophy of religion and how we can solve that problem? You know, the, this is really the struggle at the end because in 
generally in the European academic context, especially continental philosophy, um, it's actually pretentious to say that I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to provide my own framework of thinking to solve a problem. Uh, I can't even imagine saying that uh, to many of my um, teachers back then. Um, but I think what I could have, you know, what I, what I have learned from uh, writing that book perhaps is that, look, but genuinely trying to understand how the thinker thought and just to give the best of that frame, like so, so, so the best benefit of the doubt that you can provide to the framework of thinking and try to deal with the question will lead to some kind of um, original standpoint. So you can actually grant your own answer to the question. So even though maybe at the end of the book, I'm answering to the question almost with Tanabian or, you know, a metaxological voice uh, at the end, there's something original to my way of answering that question. I, and I'm not yet entirely sure if there's any name. So for instance, right, William Desmond worked in German idealism and he recognizes the problems with the ways in which Hegel, for instance, talk about dialectic. Um, so the dial, you know, his his criticism of dialectic is that it's close self determination that it, need, it lacks the understanding of the foundation in which it's possible, and that foundation requires to open the space between self and other, and he calls that between. Uh, by the way, in Kyoto School of philosophy, you have Watsuji who talks about some similar notion of the betweenness. And I don't think this is just a linguistic coincidence. And then Tanabe talks about this conversion of the perspective that allows the open model of dialectic, which he calls absolute dialectic. And that middle, he says, is uh, uh, nothingness. Right? There's no division between self and other in a way that you put two you know, determinate entities, but there's open space between the two. And because of that, we can actually intermediate these terms. Um, so, and then he uses the word metanoesis there, right? That I don't have any name that, you know, I, oh, this is the, I don't know, I don't even know how to say, like, Maurice Satorian, you know, I don't even know how to make the adjective out of my last name. But I think, you know, there's freedom and creativity involved with this kind of notion of openness or sometimes Desmond talks about this sort of agapeic release or transcendence. Uh, in Tanabe's language, it's much more like, uh, you know, metanoidic self-transcendence that goes beyond the, you know, a given framework of thinking. Um, has the freedom enough to be able to do your own thing. So, for instance, if uh, Roman, if you read, with, you know, metaxology and... Um, Metanoid, uh, philosophies of metanoidics, I think your interpretation of it in accordance with their own philosophical framework of thinking will result in something different from mine, just because they're emphasizing in this irreducibility of the singular, right? That each single individual is irreducible to each other such that there's openness between self and other. Um, so I'm still convinced with the conclusion that I made. Um, and I, I, I can't you know, pin down yet, uh, this is the absolute framework that I can come up with. But perhaps, you know, after that, I studied uh, two years at the um, 
a research center for East Asian studies at the University Libre de Bruxelles uh, in Belgium. And at that time, I specialized in kukai from pre-modern Japanese philosophy. That sort of allowed me to, let's say, expand this notion of metanoesis, not something that is just relevant in you know, contemporary continental and Japanese philosophy, but also you can look back and say, look, there are some texts from the past in history, intellectual history of Japan that can contribute to this discussion. Um, so I think, you know, change is not something that I would, you know, describe with the adjective or, you know, determinate concept, but I think kind of fundamental attitude that allows you to uh, explore the different areas of um, uh, world philosophies. And I think that is still uh, with me and I, I, I'm still convinced that's the uh, solution uh, that it can provide. Um, so, you know, that's, I'm not sure if I'm, uh, you know, giving you the right, um, the clear answer that everybody can understand, but it's it's a kind of attitude. It's, it's a kind of existential uh, attitude that I, I adapted from that uh, project, I think. And that is still very strong uh, with my um, work in academia. So maybe, you know, not in directly into my essays, but the ways I work, the ways in which I work with other scholars to compile books or uh, edit journal volumes or even maybe just live my daily lives. Um, because I think both you know, metaxology and metanoesis talk about this self-transcendence that is not uh, coming back to itself, right? So it's not self-determining, self-transcendence that, you know, I'm going to go beyond myself so that, that I can better myself. So always come back to yourself. That's the problem with the Hegelian dialectic that both thinkers had. And they both proposes this notion of self-transcendence that actually go beyond yourself. And they talk about the importance of charity and agape self-transcendence. Um, you know, then I wrote this one piece about Tanabe's wife. You know, if you actually pay attention to the biography of a thinker, and if we take Tanabe's concept seriously, for someone who seems to be actually living up to the idea is his wife than himself, you know? So uh, in some ways, I think he has a basis for uh, living a life according to these concepts. And mm. that part, I think, is still with me, uh, I would say. Okay. I think it, yeah. I think it's, uh, it's very clear. I have the feeling you're talking about um, philosophy as a way of life, in a, in a sense. Right. So it's, it's a kind of original existentialism that I wanted to work on within the in, in academic context. And I think precisely the these aspects of metaxology and, and philosophies and metanoidics um, sort of fulfilled my desire whilst being functioning <laughs> in, in academia, right? So um, it, it didn't just become poetry or uh, some sort of uh, uh, life outside of academic philosophy. Uh, I wanted to do how we can actually convey this sort of existentialism within the continental European contemporary philosophical framework, and I think that was the I kind of con, um, that was the conclusion that I could take from this project. Okay. Okay, because um, 
Earlier on, you, you mentioned uh, the fact that uh, while you were in Brussels, you started working on a, uh, on a different thinker. You started working on, on, on Kukai. And uh, since we're approaching the end of the, uh, of the interview, um, I wanted to ask, uh, to ask you about your plans for the future. So what are you working on right now? Is it still Kukai? Is it still uh, Tanabe? Um, what do you have on the table right now? So, you know, this uh, concept of betweenness, it just seems like I'm just living in between all these deadlines in academia. Um, I have, I'm working on many different projects at the, at, at the time uh, uh, right now. But the one ongoing project that I would like to mention is the European Journal of Japanese Philosophy. Uh, this is the first multilingual journal uh, dedicated to the history of Japanese philosophy and uh, we are compiling the fifth volume right now that should come out by the end of this year, hopefully. Keep your fingers crossed. Uh, that's the one project I'm working on. And another journal that I'm involved with, with groups of scholars from East Asia, is called the Journal of East Asian Philosophy uh, from Springer. Uh, that is also on the table. Uh, these journals are basically designed to accommodate articles in uh, comparative in Japanese and East Asian philosophy and also providing more translations. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, that the weakness of comparative philosophy is that we don't have enough translations to be able to substantiate our claims. So people would have to just depend upon our ability to read original language, which is not the part of a philosophical canon. Um, so that's something that I'm working on. And by extension, I'm working on many edited volume projects uh, the one is um, with uh, with the year actually, <laughs> Roman. Uh, we just launched this uh, Asian philosophical text series from Nemesis International in Milan, uh, Italy. Uh, we just published the first volume uh, this March, I think, and uh, this is the same idea that we would like to invite scholars to provide original essays, but also provide the space in which we can share our translations of Asian philosophical texts. Uh, so that's one uh, book series that I'm actually working on. Another one is called The Studies in Japanese Philosophy from Chisokudo Publications. Uh, we are making Japanese philosophy books accessible. Uh, so we're trying to publish books that are, um, are not going to uh, burn down your wallet after you buy. Uh, that's the whole idea of this uh, Chisokudo publications. And we are pushing out many books, uh, reprinting some of the out-of-print books from the past. And we published 25 volumes from there over the last three years. So that's another project. Now, there's a lot of projects that I'm working as an editor. Uh, there's one book as an author I'm working on is the Bloomsbury Introduction to World Philosophy series is pushing out many monographs that make uh, non-Western or world philosophers accessible to the general audience in uh, undergraduate level. So, you know, I'm writing a volume on Tanabe, and I have a feeling that they might actually ask me to write on Kukai. Uh, but for now, I'm finishing the manuscript, the submission deadlines end of this month. Uh, so I'm just finishing the monograph and should come out um, with many other books next year. Um, so that's another monograph that I'm working on. And then many uh, edited volumes on Kyoto School, Tanabe specifically, or Kyoto School and German philosophy. 
uh, that's the uh, in the pipeline right now. So uh, I'm basically sort of, um, you know, trying to keep up with the series of deadlines that come to my Google Calendar. So when the Google Calendar says, hey, you need to submit this for next month, you know, I just go like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. Uh, but that's, um, you know, it, it's great to be working in a comparative Japanese philosophy just because there are so much unexplored materials and uh, um, really exciting uh, work with these great scholars. It looks like uh, you have a lot on, uh, on your plate. Uh, I just wanted to add something because you, you mentioned uh, the Asian uh, uh, philosophical texts, uh, the book series. Uh, actually, the second, I don't know if you know this, the second volume just uh, came out. I just got it in the, in the uh, mail the other day. So Right. Um, that's, that's correct. <laughs> that is, yeah, the second volume is on Nishida and Philosophy of Life by actually a Japanese philosopher. Uh, his name is Higa Tatsuya from Osaka University. And yeah, that's that's just, um, it's, it's incredible how vibrant. Um, it's It almost feels like many people worked on these issues uh, long years, but they didn't have any venue. So these rich sort of seas are, you know, underground and they have these foliages and you know shades so they couldn't actually come out but suddenly we have these clearing and space in which we can publish and uh, i think we'll be able to push out many books on japanese philosophy in the near future um i hope so too and uh what can i say uh good luck with um uh, with all the projects i hope you meet mm -hmm. all the deadlines thank um, you so much and, and i think i'm writing uh your submission at some point as well probably I think so too. Yes. <laughs> As my editor, I have to actually mention that, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, thank you so much for uh, for talking to uh, to us today. Um, um, thank it's you so always, much. Uh, it's always great uh, talking to you. Like mm -hmm. I said, uh, good luck with uh, with all the projects, and I hope uh, we can do another interview next year when the Tanabe monograph is out. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this uh, great opportunity. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Takeshi. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, this was uh, our discussion with Takeshi Morisato, uh, who is the author of Faith and Reason in Continental and uh, Japanese Philosophy. Uh, see you soon. <laughs>